On December 31st, 1999, the entire world stood breathless, waiting for the clock to strike midnight. It had, become, it had come to the attention of many experts that most of our newfangled technology, computers and such, had not been equipped to roll the date over from 1999 to the year 2000. And so it was predicted that this would usher in unprecedented chaos. We'd become dependent on machines, and the machines would be our undoing. Like a plot from Terminator or something, we would, become, we would enter into what would be the equivalent of a Stone Age once we entered the year 2000. That was the fear, and so uh, I imagine this is when the show Doomsday Preppers got started. Right, people started stocking up on like those MREs and freeze-dried food and, and waters. Um, maybe that was y'all. Don't be embarrassed. It's okay. You can admit it. You're getting ready for Y2K. And then finally, the, the clock struck midnight and nothing. The lights stayed on. Life went on. And everything was... Business as usual. Pentecost is the exact opposite of that. You see, Y2K failed to deliver on the hype, but Pentecost delivered on all the hype. The promises of God came true suddenly and ferociously as a mighty rushing wind came from heaven and filled the house in which the disciples were staying. At Pentecost, we see the prediction and the the promise and the command of Acts verse 8 coming true. Chapter 1 verse 8 coming true. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. The Spirit arrives and the witness of his disciples from Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, it begins And what we find is that Jesus is for everyone. And the exhortation this week is the same as it was last week, to know Jesus and to make Jesus known. Let's pray and we'll get into the text. God, we come before you this morning as people who have nothing to offer you. You are worthy of our praise and our worship, but you need it not. You are satisfied in and of yourself. You are completely glorious. We thank you that you are also entirely loving and and gracious. Thank you that you are kind to love weak and weary Sinners like us. Do you love us enough not only to send your Son to die for our sin and to raise from the dead for our justification, but to credit his righteousness to us as if it were our own? Love us enough to fill us with your Holy Spirit This is incredible. 
You love us enough to adopt us into your family as children. God, we come before you as, as orphans this morning, once orphans, former orphans, who you came to and said, I will adopt you. You will be my child. And I will love you not on the basis of your performance, but on the basis of my promise, my graciousness, my goodness, my benevolence. God, you are so good to us. We have nothing in our lives that isn't from you. We ask this morning that you would humble us once more to the ground as we gaze upon the heights of your love for us demonstrated in the cross of Christ. Give us fresh ears to hear your word. Change us. Pray that you would do whatever is necessary in our lives to wake us up to the spiritual realities around us. Whatever is necessary for us to experience the fullness of being in relationship with you. I ask that you would help us to listen well to your word. Pray that we would hear a better sermon than I prepared and that I would preach a better sermon than I prepared. Help us to experience the fullness of your spirit this morning as your word is preached. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've been with us the, the last few weeks, you're going, how, how is it possible that we are still in the first 13 verses of Acts chapter 2? And the answer is, I don't know. That wasn't according to design. Uh, it was supposed to not even really be one week. We were going to do all of chapter 2 at once, and then it was like, okay, it'll get one week, and then it's turned into three. And so I want to review just a little bit uh, of where, what's gone on in Acts and what's kind of going on in Acts chapter 2 at the beginning here. Uh, as Pentecost um, marks the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And so Acts, if you remember, is uh, Jesus Volume 2, right? Luke is the author of Jesus Volume 1. I relabeled him. I don't know if you remember that or not. But it's called the Gospel of Luke. I just call it Jesus Volume 1. And then it's the book of Acts, and Luke writes it too. And so Jesus Volume 2, they go together. And Luke is about what Jesus begins to do and teach. And Acts is about what Jesus continues to do and teach. And you can see that in that first little paragraph uh, in Acts, right, in chapter 1, verse 1, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. After the, he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit of the apostles, he had chosen. And after he had suffered, he had also presented himself alive by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom. And so he says, uh, the first volume is about what Jesus began, and this volume, I'm going to tell you what Jesus is going to continue to do. It's not as if the Holy Spirit arrives on the scene and Jesus disappears. Jesus is operating from his throne in heaven through his Holy Spirit. He is the one that is building his church. If you remember, we summarized uh, uh, the book of Acts in these first couple chapters, especially by saying that Jesus goes up, he ascends to the throne, the Spirit comes down, he fills up the people who are following Christ, his church, and the church goes out. So Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, and the church goes out so that the gospel, the good news of 
um, Jesus crucified for our sins and risen for our justification can go into all the nations among all people groups. Second thing I want to remind you of is that this arrival of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, while um, this event is unique to the disciples, it's now normative for the Christian. And what I mean by that is that the blessing of Pentecost is now normative for you and me. The Holy Spirit, when you become a Christian, indwells you. He changes his address and he starts to live in you so that you become a little mini temple of God. And so, one of the things we talked about is what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we said that this phrase is used in different ways. And and what I wanted to impress upon you is that you have the fullness of the Holy Spirit by virtue of your union with Jesus. But your experience of that objective filling with the Holy Spirit will vary person to person based upon what God desires to do at any given moment and upon how you are living your life. And so we we looked at Galatians 6 and talked about what it means to sow to the Spirit or sow to the flesh. And we said... uh, as if there's this old sinful version of you that still kind of hangs around in you, and then there's the, the new creation you, the one that walks by the Spirit, and you're going to feed one or the other. And we said what you feed will grow. And so we're talking about kind of getting in God's presence and sowing to the Spirit that we might reap these experiences of the Father's love, these subsequent fillings of the Spirit where we can really um, feel God working in and through us by by his Holy Spirit. The illustration we used is, uh, I tweaked it a little bit because it was Mother's Day, um, and so maybe you won't recognize it, but uh, if a father is walking along with his son, he's holding his hand on the sidewalk, and then all of a sudden he picks his son up and you know just loves on him, he's kissing him, you're so cute, and giving him the hugs and, and tickling him a little bit, and then he sets his son back down, the, the son's status as the man's son didn't change, right? Like, was he more a son when his father was tickling him and hugging and kissing him? Well, no. He's just as much a son when he's walking down the street as he is when he's held in his father's arms. But did his experience of that sonship change from one moment to the next? Yes. And so, likewise, the the filling of the Holy Spirit, we always have the, the status of fullness of the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit, but our experience of it will change. And what I, want, what I want you to recognize or remind you of is that if you are not experiencing intimacy with God, it's not because you don't have enough of God. It's because you have too much of yourself. God is not holding out on you. He's given you all you need. He's given you the Spirit. But if you continue to pursue you first rather than Christ, well, you will reap what you sow. God's not holding out on you, friend. He he invites you to draw near to him. And if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. I want to walk in that fullness of the Spirit that is ours in Christ. And so, Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, the church goes out, the blessing of the Spirit has come at Pentecost, and it is now normal for us as Christians to have the Holy Spirit. To be a Christian is to have the Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit who enables us to know God and empowers us to make Jesus 
known. And we'll see here in Acts 2 that that's exactly what's happening. They, they get filled up with the Holy Spirit, and then they begin to make Jesus known to all those people who are in Jerusalem. And so what we, what we have here is uh, the fulfilling of verse 8, right? Jesus said, Holy Spirit's going to come in power, so now the Spirit's coming in power. You're going to be my witnesses, and now they're being his witnesses. We have the promise fulfilled and the command being lived out. And that's where we find ourselves as we come back once more to Acts chapter 2. And we read, When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. Now, there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? Peritheans, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phargia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But some sneered and said, They are drunk on new wine. What is going on here? Well, uh, we have said already in past weeks that the Spirit has come down. It showed up uh, like these light that was shaped like tongues that sat above their heads. He enabled them to speak in languages that they didn't know. And the people who are from all these native lands are like, that's my language, right? But these are Galileans, and so that doesn't make sense. It's a, I would try to say it would be as if you went to Louisiana and uh, you encountered some boys from the bayou, and all of a sudden, they just started speaking in fluent French and Mandarin, right? But with that really deep South accent. I don't, I don't know what that would sound like. You know, hey, y'all, wondrous works of God. Not my best. I'm not great at accents. You know? But it would be like somebody from England. Maybe, well, England's this, they speak English. doesn't work. Uh, anyhow, you get the idea. They're, they're, these are Galileans, and they're speaking with their Galilean accent, which was probably like a southern draw. I don't know if that's true or not. But, but, but there's an accent to the Galileans that is not becoming It's not associated with uh, great intelligence or studiousness. And so they are speaking in these native languages, and and the people from all these different nations are like, that's my language. And so this is significant because everybody that's in Jerusalem at this time knows two languages. They know Aramaic and they know Greek. But instead of speaking in Aramaic and in Greek, these disciples, once they're filled with the Spirit, they go out and they're speaking in the native tongues, the native languages, of all these people that have come. And we're like, what? what is happening here? Why the multiplicity of languages rather than just Aramaic or Greek? 
Do y'all know what a trailer is? Like a movie trailer? Right? It's, it's when you get this collage of scenes from the movie that, that gets you really excited about seeing the movie. I learned recently that they actually used to come after the movies, which didn't make any sense to me at all, but that's why it's called a trailer. It used to come after. Uh, but now it comes out like six months before, and it gets you really pumped up for what you're about to see. You've probably seen the one for the Avengers, the Infinity War recently, right? They've got all these explosions going on, heroes flying around, like this huge hero army running full speed at this alien army. And they've got that, that little piano in the background, like the ding, ding, ding. It's made super dramatic. And they've got like Captain America's catching Thanos' fist and you know, like shaking. And you're like, this is going to be awesome. Get you pumped up about the movie. And we kind of have a, a little trailer here in verses 5 through 13. We're getting a a preview, a look forward to the completion of the Great Commission. I actually just saw a study yesterday by Barna Group that said 51% of Christians don't know what the Great Commission is. They haven't heard of it. And so let me, if you're here and that's you, let me just clear that up right now. It's pretty important if you're a Christian. Uh, It's a commission that's really great. Uh, Jesus says, Go therefore, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. It's in Matthew 28, at the very end. What he is doing there is he is saying to his disciples, You are going to go and you are going to teach everybody everything that I've taught you. You are going to call them to repent of their sin and believe in me. We have a mini version of the Great Commission in verse 8 of chapter 1. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. That's the promise that we see at the front end of chapter 2. And now here's his command, his commission. It's the Great Commission recapitulated. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This gospel, this good news is going to go to everybody. And so here at Pentecost, they're speaking in different languages in these native tongues, these languages of the nations. What is going on here is, is we're getting a snapshot of how the gospel is going to be proclaimed and heard all over the world. And these People are mostly, it's mostly Jews and converts to Judaism, right? But, but they're serving as a symbol for the universal need of man to know Jesus and the church's responsibility to make Jesus known. I mean, there, there's no other way to be made right with God save through Jesus Christ. There's no other way. I mean, if there was another way, then Jesus would not have needed to come from heaven to earth in order to live a perfect life in your place or in order to die for your sins. He wouldn't have had to rise from the dead. There there was no other way for us to enjoy peace with God except for the cross. So it's the cross that must be proclaimed to all peoples. And that's really the rub here is that this message goes to all nations and not just to the Jews. 
right? If you, if you look back in your Bible, you recognize throughout the Old Testament that uh, Jerusalem is at the center, that the Jews are the people of God. It's the Jewish Messiah that we are looking for as we go through the Gospels. I mean, even Jesus' ministry, he says, I've been sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Israel comes first. And then the blessings of the nations, we find, comes subsequently, comes after that. See, God's plan is to ultimately bless the nations through blessing Israel. And when Jesus shows up, he turns out to be true Israel, the, 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 the suffering servant of Isaiah. He's the one in whom all of God's promises find their yes and their completion. And this is just, again, really, really surprising. Because throughout Jesus' ministry, he keeps talking about the kingdom of God. Right in Luke, he mentions the kingdom of God over 30 times. And then in Acts, we open up, and what is he teaching his disciples about yet again? Well, the, the kingdom of God, that's in verse 3 of chapter 1. And the end of Acts, we find Paul proclaiming the kingdom of God. And in between, we find that when the gospel advances, the kingdom of God advances. And so the, the disciples are really confused about this throughout his ministry. And you can see various examples if you just read through the Gospels. Uh, but one of my favorites is on Palm Sunday, Jesus is rolling in on a donkey. They, they're waving the palm branches. They're like, Hosanna in the highest. There comes the son of David. And they're all thinking like, Jesus is about to go into the city and he is about to throw off the Roman yoke, deliver us from this evil Roman Empire, and Israel is going to be great again. It's going to be awesome. And then Jesus gets in uh, to the temple, and he turns around and doesn't do anything. He just goes back, takes a nap, sleeps through the night, and then goes back into the temple the next day. He doesn't, he's not this conquering Messiah king that they're expecting. He's the king who was crucified for the good of his people because Jesus didn't come to take on Roman oppression but to take on the wrath of God in the place of his people. They were concerned with this earthly enemy, and Jesus all throughout his ministry is going, no, no, there's something bigger going on here. You have a bigger enemy than Rome, and that's the one I'm going to deal with. I'm going to deal with sin and death. And the disciples, like, they, they still don't get it, right? Even as Jesus is getting ready to walk to the cross you have him in the garden, and Judas betrays him with that kiss. And Peter is like, oh, it's on now. And he gets that sword out. He cuts the guy's ear off. And Jesus is like, no, no, Peter, that's not, that's not how we're doing things. Puts the guy's ear back on and then proceeds to go to the cross. He's not a conquering Messiah king. He wasn't concerned with building an earthly kingdom. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is, is invisible, it's real, and it's growing. The disciples, they just, I mean, they don't even get it after he is resurrected. Like, they've, they've missed it over and over again. They say, hey, the, the kingdom is invisible, it's reality, it's growing, it's like a mustard seed. And he's still in Acts, the, the first paragraph of Acts 1, teaching them about the kingdom of heaven after he's resurrected. I mean, I would have just picked a new team, right? Jesus sticks with these guys. This keeps teaching them. And what we learn about the kingdom of God is that it's 
It's God's people in God's place under, under God's rule. The, the, the kingdom of God is not a realm, but a reign, right? It's, it's anywhere where Jesus is known and believed. And so the, the kingdom of God exists anywhere that Jesus is submitted to, anywhere that Jesus is honored as king. And what's surprising about that What's surprising about the nations, the presence of the nations at Pentecost, is that it is not just Jewish people who are in the kingdom of God. That this is a monumental shift. It is, is really surprising. I mean, to the extent that even, even until we get later on in Acts and Peter is like surprised, he's like, oh, the Gentiles are involved in this kingdom too. They've got the Holy Spirit. It's, it's shocking, but, but we have a snapshot of this truth right here in Acts 2. That the gospel is for all the nations. We see the completion of this promise in Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. We read, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Is that, that little phrase is all the nations, but that phrase, salvation belongs to our God, it just reminds me of when we went through Jonah. Remember Jonah, after he gets uh, spit out of the whale, he says, salvation belongs to God. He's not happy about going to Nineveh and preaching to the, um, the pagans there, but he does it, and God has mercy on those pagans because they believe his word. And it's kind of this anticipation that the gospel is going to go to the nations. It happens throughout the Old Testament, right? Rahab's not Jewish. He ends up being part of the people of God, part of the genealogy of Jesus. Same thing with Ruth. Same thing with the widow that helps Elijah out. They all are included from these different nations in the people of God so that we see while God is primarily concerned with Israel throughout the Old Testament, his ultimate plan of rescuing the nations and reconciling them to Christ, it's still there underneath of that. God's always been concerned for the salvation of the nations. His, his heart goes beyond the borders. It went, always has gone beyond the borders of national Israel. And again, this is something that's very surprising. Paul comments on it in Ephesians 3, uh, verses 4 through 6. He says, By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles, this is the mystery, the Gentiles, they didn't like Gentiles. Gentiles are dirty and gross and they're pagans. They're not cool. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I mean, this is, uh, I'm trying to think like, this is like somebody saying to Virginia Tech students and UVA students, y'all are going to be on the same team now. This is the union of, of rivals into one. And Paul comments again in Romans 9, 
Now it is not as though the word of God has failed, because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Neither are all of Abraham's children his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. What Paul's saying here is that to be descended from Israel isn't enough. And he says, let me give you an example. Abraham had two children, Isaac and Ishmael. Only Isaac inherited the promise. And so what we find out here is that salvation comes to someone, to anybody. It doesn't come biologically, but sovereignly. It's a promise that is believed and embraced. That's what will usher someone into the kingdom of God, not simply being born into the right family. Paul again in Galatians 3, verse 7 through 9. You know then that those who have faith, these are the sons of Abraham. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying all the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. So what's going on with this multiplicity of languages at Pentecost is, is we see that the kingdom of God is diverse, that the people of God are not monoethnic, but multi-ethnic. The people of God are not one geopolitical nation, but they are made up, it's made up of all nations. That you are not part of the people of God simply by being born Jewish. That you are a part of the people of God by being born again. The promises of God come by the sovereignty of God to those who have faith in God. The gospel is for anyone who will believe. Right? And Peter's going to say that when he's given explanation to these events in verse 21. It says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, Jesus is for everyone who will have faith. Everyone who will know Jesus. All nations. There's an important application to be made here that you have to put your faith in Jesus. Someone can't do it for you. Right? Your, your family's faith will not make you right with God. Your spouse's faith will not make you right with God. Your grandparents' faith, it won't make you right with God. Belonging to a particular church because that's the church you grew up in and never actually having faith yourself will not make you right with God. You have to believe in Christ and follow Christ yourself. Your family's faith will not do. The faith of others will not do. It has to be your faith. You have to trust that Christ died for your sins rose for your life. Let me encourage you to do that. Put your faith in Christ. Turn from your sin. Submit your life to Jesus. 
And the flip side of that is if we are those who already know Jesus, we are to make Jesus known. The only way anybody is ever going to come to faith in Jesus is if you tell them about him. If you share what Jesus has done for you. Gospel, the wondrous works of God is being proclaimed in every language at once because the gospel is for all nations. Now, if you've read your Bible pretty regularly, cover to cover, you'll recognize that this account, you can't, I don't think you can read this account without thinking of Genesis 11. Are you all familiar with the story of the uh, Tower of Babel? You can turn there with me in Genesis 11. This is what we read. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They used bricks for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. Quick note here, they're, they're disobeying God. Right? Throughout Genesis, early on here, God has said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Which, I mean, the command, more crudely, have sex and travel. Right? It's a pretty good command. I don't, think, I don't think it's really hard to follow. But these guys are like, nah, we're good. We're going to stay here. We're going to build a temple to our name for our glory. And then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. And the Lord said, If they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. And what God is saying there, if they've committed themselves to this treasonous evil, if they are able to build a monument to their glory rather than my glory, any sin will be possible. They will fall into unexplicable evil. And so God says in verse 7, Come, Let's go down there and confuse their language, which I love the irony here. They're building this huge tower and God has to come down to it, like not that tall. What's up? So he says, come, let's go down there and confuse their languages so they won't understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babel, for the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. And so, judgment comes at Babylon as a consequence of man's desire to build a monument to himself. He has this building project going on. It's about the glory of humanity. And God says, that's not why you were created. You were created for my glory. And so, judgment comes in the form of confusion. They can't understand one another, and so they end up all over the earth doing what God wanted them to do in the first place. In Acts, we have languages again, but this time, instead of having one language that's confused, we have many languages that are made clear. You see that? 
Babel, confusion over one language. Pentecost, clarity with many languages. See, what's going on at Pentecost is the unbabbling of Babel. God, in Genesis, he, he breaks apart humanity. These, there are these, he curses humanity. There the, are these divisions that are now um, normative. And in Pentecost, he's, he's undoing them. He's enabling, um, he's enabling people to understand one another, even though they're from different cultures and backgrounds. And, and what, what is going on is that there is this undoing of the curses that were due for sin. Because judgment fully fell on Christ, now the curses of sin are being undone in the church. This is really cool. Like, do you understand what is happening when, you, when we gather together as a church, as a community? Like, we are participating in the unraveling of sin's curses. Not slow and gradual because we're still sinners. But we are, are participating in the new reality that, that God has, has given to us, which is that we are made right with Him and that we are made right with one another. The church, we see in Acts that the church is made up of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And that these things that used to divide us from one another no longer do because we've been made one in Christ, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 2. He says, I I take Jews and take Gentiles and make them one new man. So God takes sinners separated from one another and he makes them one in Christ. He makes them his people part of his kingdom, so that the church becomes the um, manifestation and the explanation of the kingdom of God. The, the church is where heaven and earth are to intersect. We're supposed to be an embassy of, of heaven. We're supposed to be able to, to walk into our doors and get a little taste of what it's like to be with Jesus in heaven, in the new heavens, and the new earth. I think of it maybe like if you've ever been to a foreign country and you just, you know, I, I went to China a few years ago and you're walking around and you're like, hey, this cultural stuff is cool, like open market, like, you know, the meat's just kind of hung out and like chickens running around and like you know, killing the frogs in front of you as you order them. And you're like, okay, this is neat, love other cultures. But then there comes a time where you're like, I really want something American. Like I just need to get home. And you find like Starbucks is everywhere. You get in there and people talk English. You're like, oh, this is great. Taste of home. I think, I think you know, latte, glorious. I think the same thing is, is true of the church. The Bible tells us that we live on this earth as sojourners and strangers. When we come to the church, right, we come in to a place that is to, to be a little piece of heaven on earth, if you will where those natural divisions have been crushed by Jesus, where Jew and Gentile come together. Michael Lawrence gives an example of this in his uh, neat little book, Conversion. It's on the table back there. I recommend it to you, but uh, he shares this story. He says, Some years ago, an older gentleman began visiting the church to which I belonged. It was a church full of young people, and so quite naturally, he stayed on the edge of the community. But he didn't go away. He watched. 
He listened. He got to know many of us. And the day came when he put his faith in Christ. In his baptismal testimony, he explained what had happened. It turns out he was a psychiatrist and university professor. All of his training had taught him that what he was seeing in that church was not possible. Genuine community that crossed natural barriers. Real change that wasn't just therapeutic adjustment. Self-sacrificing love for others that was not transactional. He realized that the only thing that could explain what he was seeing was that God was real and the gospel of Jesus Christ was true. I wonder if somebody could come to our church and be converted like that. I wonder if we are like a mirror that just reflects culture back to itself. A bunch of people just hanging out because we like some of the same things, have common interests. Or if we really are a light to the gospel. Because if we're united around the anything other than Christ, then I'm not sure what we're doing. The local church is God's evangelism plan for the world. We are to reflect the kingdom of heaven. We are to reflect the rule and reign of Christ. Are we doing that? I wonder, like, we are not multi-ethnic by any stretch of the imagination. Just look around, right? A lot of white people hanging out. I don't think, I don't think that's necessarily sin on our part. I don't think that's the consequence of our sin. I hope it's not. I think it's more the consequence of where we live. Uh, Eric Mason has wisely said, there's nothing wrong with an ethnically homogeneous church just as long as it is multi-ethnic friendly. You have to welcome those not like you. And I do think uh, we are a welcoming church. Uh, I always have people tell me uh, when they visit, I, I was welcomed and it was wonderful. It was such a warm and inviting place. And, and I hope that truly is our posture as a church and the posture of our hearts. Because God died for a diverse people, right? Like one culture in Christ is not preeminent above another culture. When you become a Christian, you don't have to become Jewish. When you become a Christian, you don't have to become anything but a Christian. You get to maintain your cultural identity, your, your racial skin color, but now that identity becomes subservient to your identity in Christ. So that when a Chinese person becomes a Christian, they don't have to become a white Anglo-Saxon. Or when a black person becomes a Christian, they don't have to become an Asian, right? God's people are diverse and we should care about and welcome and love people that are different than us, okay? The, the Great Commission is about making Jesus known to all nations. And so how can we not love the nations? If you only have a heart for other white people, then you need to repent of your sin. I want to be a part of what God is doing in the world. And what he is doing is he is uniting people from every tongue, tribe, and nation into 
a kaleidoscope of color and culture that he calls his church. All of us glorifying him. That's what he's doing. And don't you want to be a part of that? I mean, I certainly do. I want, to, I want my posture to be, you know, anytime I engage with somebody from a different culture or background that I am welcoming them into my community and into the church. But the reason I'm kind of harping on this is because it's just not proven to be true in our churches. I saw a study that broke my heart this week that the least likely group of people in America to welcome immigrants or refugees is evangelical Christians. We've missed it, folks. If we care the least about the poor and the marginalized, then we are not like Jesus. Don't tell me that you love Jesus, but you hate the refugees that have made their way to our country. I'm not even talking about immigration policy, conservative, Democrat, whatever. Like, do, yeah, we need a clear path to citizenship and everybody disagrees about how that should happen. Disagree about how it should happen. You can't disagree about loving the stranger. You can't disagree about loving those who are not from here. We should be at the front of the line to welcome refugees, to welcome immigrants. I mean, our Savior... Jesus was a refugee and an immigrant. These are, these are people. And I think too often we get caught up in our ideological hobby horses and we, we, we just dehumanize them. These are just immigrants. They don't belong here. And I'm not, not saying we shouldn't follow laws. I think the law is there and it is good and we should follow it. I also think that God calls us to love our neighbor as ourself. And maybe you're sitting there going, well, who is my neighbor, right? And who does Jesus say the neighbor is, right? Tells us that parable of the Good Samaritan. I fear that many of us, maybe you haven't physically done it, but I think in our heart of hearts, we are as the Pharisee who passes by and comes up with an excuse why caring for that particular impoverished person or that person that is different than us isn't our job. It is. We're we're to prove the truth of the gospel by speaking the gospel and living the gospel out to in and to every people group, every nation. Can we just get a snapshot of this at Pentecost? They're speaking in all these different languages. And it's showing us that eventually one day when the Great Commission is fulfilled, that indeed people from all over the earth are going to praise God. And one of the neat things in heaven is it seems like we maintain these distinctions. You know, in Revelation, they're from every tongue, tribe, and nation. That's neat. I wonder if I have to learn languages in heaven. I won't be crazy about that. But but the point is, is that, that God's heart is bigger than one ethnicity or one group of people. And yours needs to be too. Jesus has died to reconcile anyone who will put their faith in him to himself and to his community. And he calls that community the church. I mean, I really want to be a part of what God's doing in the world. He's empowered us to do this. He's enabled us to know Jesus 
And he's empowered us to make Jesus known. Like, Jesus is going to build his church. He doesn't need you to do it. He doesn't need me to do it. He's building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The question is, are you going to participate? He's going to build it either way. I want to be participating. I want to prove the gospel true by loving one another and by loving our neighbors. And do you think we do a pretty good job about uh, overcoming some of those natural barriers? Like, age-wise, we do a pretty good job of that. You know, I'm in my 30s now, hanging out with some of you who are more seasoned, right? <laughs> but that's because of the work of the gospel. Like, many of you all are my friends, and we don't have anything in common in that, except for Christ. And that's awesome. Let's be a part of what God is doing. Jesus is for everyone who will believe. Let's commit to knowing him and making him known. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you use imperfect people and imperfect sermons to make dramatic changes. Pray that this morning you would use the imperfect preaching of your word to bring about some more of the perfection of Christ in us. That you would compel us to love as we have been loved. Pray that we would be more committed to the good of one another and to the good of our neighbors than we are to the good of ourselves or the success of our causes. None of us deserves your grace, Lord. But you have seen fit to rescue us from our sin. God, we deserve wrath, and you sent Jesus to take that for us so that we, by faith, can have his blessing, every spiritual blessing in heaven. You've promised us resurrection from the dead. You've promised us that death isn't the final word, that the final word is happily ever after for those who trust in Jesus. God, thank you. Thank you and give us, we ask, the power to live out of that gratitude. Help us to love you back by obeying your word to make Jesus known among the nations. This is our heart, God. Do what's necessary to conform us to the image of Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.